good afternoon everybody thank you all very much for showing up so i'm very excited about this episode because leverage is such a powerful idea in life so it applies not just to companies it applies to individuals as well and we can take enormous advantage of leverage to magnify the results of our efforts if we know how but at the same time just like any tool leverage is like a kind of like a knife so you can use it uh, to very good effect or you can uh, use it to uh, cut yourself and so we have to be very careful when we are using leverage so that's the topic for today's episode uh what exactly leverage is how to use it productively and how not to get into some of the common pitfalls that a lot of people get into when they use leverage and it hurts them so this is broadly the topic for today uh so where does the word leverage come from uh it actually comes from the physics uh word lever and so a long time ago uh, people found out when they were first designing tools and things like that to make the work of building um uh, structures easier and and so on uh, people found out that uh, you can move a heavy object using very little effort if you have a long lever so you you put this object at one end of the lever and then uh, you you put a fulcrum uh, which is a point on which the lever is balanced and then what you do is uh, you stand at the other end of the lever and then you apply this effort and if you place the fulcrum near the heavy object what happens is you can amplify the result of uh, you, the effort that you put in so in this way uh, a small fellow a small human being can move a huge boulder or something like that and uh, so that that is the principle of how a lever operates and then by using these levers and pulleys and all these ingenious uh, contraptions uh, people were able to build enormous structures uh, like the the pyramids in egypt and so on uh, using these primitive tools uh, so that's where the word leverage comes from uh, the the physics of the lever so whenever you can uh use a small amount of effort to do something big uh that is called leverage so a uh, small input and that is magnified to produce a large output so this input can be time you spend a small amount of time but you achieve something great for the amount of time spent or it can be physical effort small amount of effort large output or it can be capital a small amount of capital you put in you get a large return out of it uh, that that is financial leverage so there are various different kinds of leverage and in finance because this is a show about money um in in finance uh, companies have used leverage to great effect and individuals have used leverage to great effect uh, so we'll be talking about the financial aspects of it but uh, it is important to understand that uh, um any kind of input when it is magnified uh, to produce a large output uh, that 
that that is probably some amount of leverage that is going on behind the scenes. So it it was uh, Archimedes uh, who said, "Give me a lever long enough and a fulcrum on which to place it, and I shall move the world." And theoretically, he he's right. If if you have a long enough lever, um, then even a small child can move the whole world uh, just by the principles of physics. Uh, so that that's what leverage is all about. Uh, let me give you an example of financial leverage. Uh, because uh, this, this show is about money. Uh, so let, let's say we have a project, okay? This project takes $1 million of capital. And uh, if you put one in, $1 million of capital into this project, you can take out, say, 250 k for the next 10 years. So you spend $1 million maybe buy a, uh, buy a machine or something like that for the $1 million. And uh, that machine is a useful asset. And during the life of this asset, uh, the the machine will make uh, uh, some some uh, new widget or something like that, which you can sell uh, for for and make two fifty k profit per year for ten years. So ten years is the useful life of this machine, and the machine costs one million dollars. So uh, you can calculate what your return is if you invest into buying this machine. So you put in one million dollars upfront, and over the next ten years, you get to take out two fifty k per year. So if you go and do a calculation, uh, a standard uh, IRR calculation, where uh, there is a negative cash flow of $1 million at the beginning because you put in $1 million, and then that, there is a positive cash flow of 250 k 10 positive cash flows of 250 k one per year spread out over 10 years. If you calculate the IRR of this, you get 21.4% roughly. So that's uh, the return that you get by investing into this project. Now, uh, what if we use leverage? Uh, what, how, how does this return change if we use leverage? Uh, so without leverage, the return is 21.4% per year. Uh, now, of course, the question is how much leverage do we use? So let's just put some numbers to this. So let's say we, we uh, th this machine costs $1 million. So we, we need $1 million of capital. So let's say we take 200K of our own money and put it into buying this machine. And then we go and borrow the other 800K. So uh, this creates what is called financial leverage. And I'll explain how in a minute. So uh, the first thing to recognize is that when we go and borrow 800K, no one's going to give, give us 800K for free. So we, we have to pay some inter interest on it. So let's say the interest is 5% per year. Okay, so 5% of 800K is about 40K. So we need to pay 40K uh, in interest per year. Uh, so let's say we do this. So we uh, put in 200K of our own money. We borrow the 800K at 5% interest. Uh, so now we have, we take this 200K and the 800K, we have $1 million. We go buy this machine. Now uh, this machine is going to give us 250K for the next uh, 10 years. Uh, but of course, uh, what we need to do is we need to uh, spend 40K of that in interest. So we have to pay 40K to whoever loaned us the money. So that leaves us with something like 210K per year. But of course, uh, at the end of 10 years, we also have to uh, return the principal, the 800K that we borrowed, we have to return that principal back to uh, whoever loaned us the money. So uh, if we have to return 800K at the end of 10 years, uh, one prudent thing to do is to just set aside 80k per year right now 
So if we set aside 80K per year at the end of 10 years, we will have this, uh, 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 this 800K, which we can then return. So what is this machine going to give us? This machine is going to give us 250K per year. Uh, of this 250K, we are going to set aside uh, 40K to pay for interest. And that leaves us with 210K. And then from this 210K, we are going to set aside 80K to pay uh, principal. And that is going to leave us with 130K. So uh, we can pocket this 130K for 10 years. So without leverage, what we were doing is we put in $1 million and we could take out 250K per year for 10 years. But with leverage, we don't put in $1 million, we put in only 200K, but we are able to take out 130K for 10 years. Now, if you calculate the IRR of this sequence, you put in 200K, a negative cash flow of 200K at the beginning, followed by 10 positive cash flows of 130K each. If you calculate the IRR of this sequence, the internal rate of return, you get 64.6% per year. So that is the power of leverage. So without leverage, if we just had to use our own money to uh, do this, we get a 21.4% return. But if we are allowed to use leverage, if we are allowed to use other people's money for our own ends by investing into this machine, we are able to increase our return from 21.4% to 64.6%. And that is the power of leverage. So we take a small amount of capital, just 200K, not $1 million, just 200K, a small amount of capital, and that enables us to produce a large return with it. That is the fundamental principle of leverage. Uh, now, of course, the, the most common way that leverage uh, occurs in the financial world is uh, through debt. Uh, so in this particular example that I gave, what we did was we borrowed 800K of money and that money uh, was debt. So we issued some debt, we borrowed money, and we were able to use this debt to improve our returns. And this is a, a common way that businesses use to boost returns for their owners. So if a business can go and use some, some other person's money, some creditor's money, then it can improve the returns for the owners of the business. So that is one common way leverage works. Uh, the other common way is uh, not to use debt, but to use what is called float capital. So float capital uh, has a lot of characteristics that are common with debt. So for example, just like debt, float capital is also other people's money. It's not money that is put up by the owners of a business. So for example, uh, the, the example that I like to give is uh, Starbucks. So when I go to Starbucks and uh, I, I take my Starbucks card and I load the card with money, essentially what I'm doing is I'm giving Starbucks an interest-free loan when I put money into my Starbucks card, when I prepay for my coffee. So that uh, money which I load into my Starbucks card, Starbucks can use that money and improve returns for Starbucks's shareholders. So in this case, that 
money that I put into the card, if I put $100 into the card, Starbucks has $100 of float uh, that comes from me. So float can come from customers like this. Float can also come from suppliers. So when a company goes and buys uh, goods from suppliers, buys inventory from suppliers on credit, what happens is uh, they are essentially getting a certain amount of capital for free from the supplier because they go and uh, get this inventory from the supplier on credit and then they will pay the supplier later. So this is almost like an interest-free loan for the company. So uh, capital can come uh, to a company uh, from suppliers, from customers, from employees. So typically an employee works for a, for a month or for two weeks and only after that the employee is paid. So what that means is uh, this two weeks of labor or one month of labor that the employee is giving the employer, uh, that is a kind of float for the employer because it's it's an it's like an interest-free loan. Uh, similarly, the government, uh, so when, uh, when a company can defer paying taxes until a later date, uh, it can use those uh, deferred taxes to do something uh, productive with it. So that is again an example where... Uh, the company gets float capital. So float capital can come from lots of different sources and it's all other people's money. So whenever a business has access to other people's money, uh, it's got financial leverage and it can use that financial leverage to improve returns for owners. I'll give you a sim simple example. So let's let's say we have this business, okay? Um, so let, let's say this business uh, buys and sells uh, expensive diamond jewelry or some, something like that, okay? Uh, so let's say uh, it it buys uh, diamond jewelry worth hundred hundred million dollars, um, and then uh, it it keeps this uh, jewelry around for a year, and during the course of this year, over a period of time, uh, over a period of this one year, it sells this jewelry for let's say uh, hundred and twenty million dollars. So uh, what the owners of this business do is they go out and buy diamond jewelry for 100 million and over the course of one year they slowly sell it for 120 million so that's a 20 percent return for the owners per year right there because they buy something for 100 million and then they sell it for 120 million so that's a 20 percent return for the owners over a period of one year and they can keep repeating this every year so with the same uh, 100 uh, $100 million of capital, they can keep generating $20 million for themselves every year. So that's a 20% return on their capital. Now, suppose these guys had power with the supplier of the jewelry. Suppose what they say is, okay, we are not going to pay for the diamond jewelry upfront when we buy it from you. Uh, give us the diamond jewelry on credit. And then as and when we sell the jewelry, we will... Uh, pay you back for the jewelry. Suppose the company goes and tells its suppliers this and suppose the suppliers agree to this. Then look at the economics of this business, how the economics completely change. So now the owners don't have to put up even $1 of capital into this business because they don't have to buy any diamond jewelry. So what they can do is they can take delivery of the jewelry, they can sell the jewelry, uh, for $120 million. And then from that $120 million, they can take $100 million and give it to the supplier. So what has happened is a business that was previously earning 20% on capital with zero leverage 
Now, because they have this leverage from the suppliers, it now earns an infinite percent on capital. The, the, the return on capital is infinite because there's no capital invested into the business and the owners still get to take out 20 million every year. Uh, so, so an ordinary business, an ordinary business proposition can be transformed into an extraordinary business proposition simply through the use of leverage, which is other people's money. Uh, so lots of people uh, have understood the potential of leverage. It's, uh, it's quite uh, uh, awesome if you can use it in your favor. And so a lot of people have tried to use leverage, but unfortunately there are risks involved. So whenever you have a concept like leverage that can amplify your return like this from 20% to infinite percent, uh, there are always going to be some risks involved. So for example, what if you take delivery of uh, this diamond jewelry from, from your supplier, but you're not able to sell it at all. So in a year, you'll have to pay the supplier back, but you, you, you weren't able to sell the jewelry or maybe you had to mark it down or something like that. Uh, then there is a big risk. So uh, typically how this risk manifests itself is through a reduction in what is known as margin of safety. So Let's take the first example that I had. So we uh, we buy this machine for $1 million and then we get to take out 250K per year. Now, um, over 10 years, uh, we, we get to take out 2.5 million, right? So 250K per year for 10 years is 2.5 million. But how much of this 2.5 million do we need uh, just to break even on our investment? So if our investment is $1 million, then uh, we just need 100K per year to break even for 10 years, right? If we get 100K per year, we, we break even. So we are expecting to draw 250K per year, but if we get 100K per year, we are fine. So that means uh, we have a margin of safety of 150K per year. So uh, as long as uh, it, some, something can go wrong with the business, something can, uh, the, the machine can break down, we may be forced to incur some extra costs or we may not be able to sell the output of this machine for as much as we thought we would be able to sell it for. All these things can go wrong, but as long as whatever goes wrong is less than 150K per year, uh, we are still fine. We will not lose money. But suppose we did the leverage situation. Suppose we uh, only employed 200K of our own capital. Uh, we borrowed 800K. Then the problem is we need 120K per year just to uh, break even on the loan because we have to set aside 40K uh, for interest and 80K to pay back the principal. So just to break even on the loan, we need 120K. Plus we are putting in 200K of our own money. So that means we need 20K per year uh, to break even on that. So in all, we need 140K per year to break even. So without leverage, all we need is 100K per year to break even. But with leverage, we now need 140K per year to break even. So that means our margin of safety has reduced. So previously, our margin of safety was 150K per year. Things can go wrong, but as long as they go wrong, to, to the tune of less than 150K per year, we are fine. But now uh, our margin of safety is only 110K per year. So uh, fewer things can go wrong. Um, and if, if they go wrong, then we, we will be in trouble. So uh, that is why um, leverage can be so risky if it is used improperly. 
So Warren Buffett has this wonderful analogy of a uh, um, dagger mounted on the steering wheel. So he says, if you use too much leverage, it's like mounting a dagger uh, on the steering wheel of your car pointed directly at your heart. So as you're driving on the road, you'll be a very, very careful driver. You won't make any sharp turns or sudden brakes or anything like that because you have this dagger that is pointing at your heart. You'll be very, very careful driving the car. But that is only on a good road, you'll be fine. The minute you hit a pothole, the first pothole that you hit will kill you because you can't plan for it. Uh, something wrong happens, the dagger is going to poke you and you're going to die. So this analogy of having a dagger mounted on the steering wheel of a car, that, that is what excessive leverage is. So it, it makes you fragile. It makes you less robust. So the smallest uh, disturbance uh, could kill you if you have too much leverage. So uh, in fact, in, in, during the 2008 financial crisis, and in fact, any, any kind of financial crisis, uh, usually what happens is a lot of people take on uh, excessive amounts of leverage. So a bank, for example, uh, they may have um, for, for every uh, $100 of uh, their own capital, they may be loaning out uh, $1,000 to somebody else because they, they borrow $900 from depositors and they have $100 of their own capital in there. And then now they have $1,000 and then they loan out this $1,000. But guess what? If 10% of their loans go bad, if people are not able to pay back 10% of their loans, then their entire equity is completely wiped out. And leverage is uh, the kind of thing that causes this, this kind of risk. So there is an enormous amount of risk that uh, can come from improper use of leverage. And so we have to be very, very cognizant uh, when we use leverage in our own personal lives and also when we analyze companies that use lots of leverage, we have to make sure that the company is doing the right things and it's not taking on too much leverage, which is not going to come back and uh, cause it to go bankrupt or something like that. Huh. So that that is uh, super important. Uh, so let's let's talk about a few risks that uh, that can come from leverage. So one very, very common uh, risk that comes with leverage happens when companies rely on being able to roll over their debt. So a company has, has borrowed, let's say, $10 million, and uh, they, they have to return that $10 million next year or whatever, but they cannot generate enough cash from their own operations to return that $10 million. They have to borrow $10 million from somebody else and then return it, and then now they have this $10 million that they have to return to this new creditor. Uh, and then next year, they'll have to find a third creditor to borrow from. And so they keep rolling over the debt this way. Uh, now, this can, uh, be, this, this can work well during good times. But from time to time, what happens is there is a financial crisis. or there is some big uh, uh, event that is happening like uh, COVID or something like that where capital markets just freeze up and companies can no longer find access to capital. So if you keep relying on rolling over your debt uh, for every month or every year or something like that, sooner or later, the party is going to stop when there is a financial crisis and then the company is going to go bankrupt. So uh, companies uh, should make 
good use of leverage when they can get leverage on attractive terms. So, for example, if a company can borrow, say, um, $1 billion today and they only have to repay it 50 years from now and they can borrow it at, say, 1% 1 per year interest or something like that, very low interest, uh, then they should be able to take advantage of leverage. But they should be able to generate enough cash from their own operations to make all principal and interest payments. They should never rely on being able to borrow at such favorable terms year after year after year. If they rely on that, then that is a recipe for disaster. Warren Buffett has called this a, a Russian roulette type situation. So if you have a Russian roulette uh, situation, what it is is you load a gun with, uh, a gun has six chambers, you load it with one bullet and then you spin the, uh, the, the chambers and then you, you shoot at yourself. And uh, the, there's a five and six chance that you will make it, but then there's a one and six chance that you will die. So this is something like that. So if every year, uh, that, there may be an, uh, a 90% probability that the company uh, makes it uh, each year. But then eventually, if, if you keep taking on the same risk again and again, eventually it's going to catch up to you. So uh, leverage can uh, have this kind of risk. So it's important to look at uh, the balance sheet of a company uh, and to figure out where it is getting its capital from and whether it is reliant on this source of capital being available permanently. So if it is reliant on this capital, if it does not have enough cash from its own operations to pay off its debt, if it is reliant on rolling over debt, then that is usually a bad idea. That is uh, uh, something like a ticking time bomb and those companies are best avoided. Uh, then when companies borrow money uh, to achieve this financial leverage, uh, they, they have to agree to all kinds of covenants and things like that. And sometimes what happens is uh, they, they can be in breach of those covenants. For example, one, one covenant might say your, your interest coverage ratio should be uh, at least five to one or something like that. So uh, you should be able to make uh, your cash flow from operations should be at least five times whatever you need to make your interest payments. And if that dips below five times, then the company may be in trouble because when they borrowed money, they agreed that they will uh, try to keep this ratio above five times, uh, things like that. So when, when companies borrow money, they, uh, they agree to a set of terms. Uh, so interest rate is just one of those terms. There may be covenants, there may be an equity kicker. For, for example, a company might uh, borrow money today and say, okay, if we are unable to pay this money or uh, at some future date, if our stock price is trading in this range, then uh, we will uh, issue some extra shares and give it to the creditor. So now uh, it's this is called a convertible debt. So when a company borrows money on, on these terms, then what happens is there is additional risk because uh, the company may have to issue additional equity and uh, therefore dilute existing shareholders just in order for this uh, capital to be available to them. So there are all kinds of things when companies borrow money and uh, we have to sit and analyze uh, what are all the possible things that can go wrong uh, when a company borrows money uh, and then try to figure out, okay, what are the benefits of this leverage that the company has incurred and what are the costs, what are the risks and so on. And we have to take an informed view about whether the risks are worth the benefit or not. So a lot of people like to use this ratio called the debt to equity ratio. So they look at how much equity capital the company has 
and how much debt the company has issued and then uh, the debt to equity ratio uh, if it is below a certain level they may say it's okay and if it's above a certain level they may say it's not okay so for example if a company has uh, ha- has 1 billion dollars of equity but it has 2 billion dollars of debt then debt to equity uh, the ratio is 2 is to 1 and some people are not comfortable with that they say no no i i want the debt to equity ratio to be uh, maximum 0.5 or something like that so 2 is well above 0.5 so i'm not comfortable with this company so that is one common yardstick that investors use to judge whether a company has too much leverage or not but i am not a fan of debt to equity Uh, simply because debt to equity ratio it treats all debt as equal so obviously there's a big difference between uh, say 2 billion dollars of debt that is coming due tomorrow versus 2 billion dollars of debt that is due 50 years from now right uh, so debt to equity ratio will treat both these debts the same uh, it doesn't matter whether the debt is due tomorrow or the debt is due 50 years from now the debt to equity ratio is still the same uh, and i i don't think that is how you should analyze debt uh because there's a big difference uh, if if you have 50 years to pay debt versus if you have to pay it out tomorrow so what is important to analyze in my view is you take the debt of the company you figure out what the company's obligations are what interest payments are due at what time what principal repayments are due at what time so let's say one year from now if, if the company has to pay 2 billion dollars of uh, uh, of debt now Uh, okay one year from now we need to have this much of cash uh, in order to be able to pay off this debt okay how much cash do we have now suppose we have 1 billion dollars of cash now and we need to pay 2 billion dollars so in the next one year can we make can this company generate 1 billion dollars of cash from its operations so this is how i like to think about debt so what are all the obligations that the company has agreed to how much cash does the company have now and between now and whenever these obligations come due can the company generate enough cash more than enough cash to be able to pay off all these obligations with a high probability so uh, i think this is how debt should be analyzed uh, whether a company has too much leverage or uh, only a little amount of leverage only a manageable amount of leverage i i think it should be decided based on what the obligations are and how much cash the company can generate uh, conservatively estimated and then is this cash that the company can generate is it more than enough to meet all these obligations so i think that is a much better way of looking at debt than uh, just looking at the debt to equity ratio and seeing if it's less than a particular number or not so that that is one way uh, uh, i typically analyze a company's debt so if you want to go and look at companies that have um, done a very good job in my opinion of structuring their debt uh, i would say take a look at home depot's balance sheet home depot has about 35 billion dollars of debt or something like that but look at how they have structured this debt they have structured this debt in such a way that no large payment is due at any given time and uh, during any year uh from now up to 2050 or something like that during any year they don't really have to make more than 1 and 1/2 billion or 2 billion dollars a year uh whereas they they have cash flows in in the neighborhood of uh, 10 to 12 12 billion dollars a year uh in uh, during normal years so uh, that their cash flows can drop 
by uh, 50% or 60% and they'll still be able to meet their obligations. So I think even though they have a huge amount of debt on their balance sheet, they've structured it very intelligently. And so I think they are making good use of leverage uh, uh, for the benefit of their owners. Um, so the other thing with leverage is when it comes to personal leverage. Um, so so there, there are many ways we can take advantage of leverage in our own personal lives. Uh, so one, one thing, uh, simple thing that a lot of us do is just uh, buy a house uh, by taking on a, a mortgage. So um, we, the minute we take on mortgage, we are, we are agreeing uh, uh, to, to a set of obligations in the future. So if, if we take on a 30-year mortgage or something like that, we are, we are agreeing to uh, pay off this loan over, uh, over a period of 30 years, make monthly payments uh, over 30 years. But Typically, uh, over 30 years, what's going to happen is inflation is going to reduce the, uh, the, the purchasing power of, of our dollars. So essentially what we are doing is we are uh, taking out uh, money today. We are, we are borrowing money today uh, using high value dollars, using those high value dollars to buy an asset, uh, which is the house, and then paying off this loan over a period of 30 years uh, using dollars that are less and less valuable over time. So uh, we, we are, in fact, benefiting from inflation whenever we borrow money. So that is one way we can use leverage in our own personal lives to uh, to improve uh, our financial situation uh, by buying a house, by taking out a mortgage. Uh, but then again, uh, what happened during the 2008 crisis was uh, pe- people uh, borrowed too much of money uh, to buy houses, large houses, relying that uh, the price of the house will keep going up. Uh, and when the price of the house didn't go up, uh, they were hard pressed to make their mortgage payments and so on. So whenever we incur any kind of leverage in our uh, personal lives, we are making a commitment to meet a certain set of obligations, make some monthly payments and things like that. And if for some reason we are not able to make those monthly payments, uh, either because we lose our jobs or because uh, we, we thought our home prices will keep increasing, but they didn't. Uh, and so uh, we are not able to pay back our loans, something like that. Uh, then uh, we, we are in trouble. So uh, whenever we take out any kind of loan, margin loans uh, uh, to buy stocks is one other common example where people shoot themselves in the foot. Um, any time we try to use leverage, we have to be very, very aware of the kinds of risks that we are taking uh, and the kind of benefit that we are getting from it. And then we have to compare the benefits to the risks and uh, make an informed decision as to whether the benefit is actually worth the risk or not. Uh, So I think these are all the points that I wanted to add uh, about leverage. So sorry if I uh, rambled on for too long. Uh, I'm now uh, happy to take some questions from you guys if you have any questions yeah the first caller is uh, ricardo hi good afternoon Tenki. very hey. interesting topic thank you um this is something i was planning to read about so i'm glad for this topic i would like you to explain um something for me though uh i have been i don't know much but you mentioned the, 20, the 2008 financial crisis. 
So I want you to talk a little about this company that failed if it was a matter of over leverage that caused them to collapse. And that's Lehman Brothers. So I would just like you to see, to say um, how leverage, if leverage was a part of their downfall. Thank you. Uh, sure. So <laughs> uh, there, there were a lot of contributing uh, factors uh, to, to the crisis. Uh, so it, it started off in the in, in the housing markets when uh, a lot of people uh, borrowed enormous amounts of money uh, uh, to, to buy houses because they thought house prices would always keep going up. Uh, but then the, the trouble with Lehman and others was that uh, these kinds of uh, assets, which, which is uh, the, the mortgages that these people took out to, to buy houses, uh, they, they were all bundled and uh, sold in in the form of uh, 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 collateralized debt obligations and uh, CDOs and credit default swaps <laughs> and things like that. There, there was an entire uh, range of derivatives that were uh, that were created, and um, Lehman Brothers was caught on the wrong side uh, of, of of those uh, derivatives trading. So, so whenever you trade uh, derivatives, so a, a derivative is an instrument whose value depends on uh, the value of uh, an underlying security. So uh, a simple option, a simple example is a, is a call option. So, so if, you, uh, if you have a call option, uh, what, what you're essentially doing is you're making a leveraged uh, bet on the movement of a particular stock. So you're not, putting, um, you're not betting on a stock by buying the stock itself, uh, but you're buying uh, something like the right to buy the stock at a future uh, date and if the stock price goes up between now and that future date what happens is this option can become very valuable uh, but if the stock price remains exactly where it is or goes down or something like that the option uh, completely loses its value so you may be able to make say 10 percent on 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 the stock uh, between now and uh, some future date but if you invest in this option uh, your upside is suddenly maybe 2x or 3x but then your downside is now 100%. You can lose all your money, uh, whereas the probability of the stock itself going to zero may be very little. So uh, whenever you're dealing with any kind of uh, uh, derivative, uh, you are making a leveraged bet. Uh, and you have to be very, very careful uh, to make sure that you don't make too many of these bets and they can't all go bad at the same time uh, and wipe you out entirely. That is one thing. And the second thing that you have to worry about if you're making large amounts of uh, bets on derivatives is always uh, the counterparty risk. So if, if you make uh, a trade with someone else saying, okay, so I, 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 will, I, I will give you this, uh, say, say $5 of premium per share today, but at a future date, you have to deliver these thousand shares to me. Uh, if I choose to exercise my right. This is what a derivatives contract looks like. Uh, you have to be worried about counterparty risks. So what what happens if those thousand shares become super valuable? Will this person who promised to deliver those thousand shares to you, uh, will they actually be able to keep up that promise? Uh, so when you when you make small amounts of bets on the, on the markets, uh, uh, when you trade options and things like that, uh, you, you may not care too much about counterparty risk because uh, counterparty risk is small in this case and the, the options exchange 
they strive hard uh, to make sure that this risk is minimal. But when, when you're Lehman Brothers and you're making these huge bets on enormous amounts of derivatives, uh, you do care about who the counterparty is and will they be able to keep up their end of the bargain uh, when, when you trade these derivatives. So um, so, so Lehman Brothers, uh, uh, they, they did employ uh, lots of leverage uh, in more ways than one. And uh, that, that was kind of a contributing factor uh, to uh, their uh, uh, demise in, in 2008. But the, the, there was a whole host of complicated factors behind the scenes. And uh, the, these derivatives that uh, uh, the, the, mortgage, uh, the, the, the mortgage industry, uh, well, the, 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 the mortgages that were packaged and sold in tranches and converted into derivatives uh, ha- had a uh, had a big role to play in the crisis. So uh, B- Warren Buffett has ca- called these these weapons uh, weapons of mass destruction. So financial weapons of mass destruction. Uh, these derivatives. So if if you don't know what you're doing, um, if you have a portfolio of derivatives, you, you have to be very careful. Uh, not not just uh, in each individual derivatives contract that you're entering into but also uh, the counterparties in all these contracts and also how these contracts interact with one another. Can they all fail at the same time? Uh, and things like that. Uh, does, does that answer the question? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, but what I find surprising though is that before this collapse is that it seems like all the rating agency gave Lehman, you know, the triple A ratings and so on. And I'm wondering if they didn't see some signs of danger in not only this company, but other companies that had similar um, derivative or, or, or um, as, as you called it. So, you know, it's well, so much well, to yes. learn. Uh-huh. I, I think it's widely acknowledged uh, that that the ratings agencies uh, didn't do a very good job at rating securities, uh, not just the credit of institutions like Lehman Brothers, but also uh, the the assets, the the uh, the mortgage backed securities. So uh, when you have a bunch of mortgages, uh, and these are all subprime mortgages, meaning uh, people who uh, who were who actually borrowed money under these mortgages. They did not have good credit histories and things like that. So historically, the, these kinds of mortgages have a high failure rate. But then somehow when you club the whole bunch of these mortgages together uh, and then made a security out of it, uh, suddenly the ratings agencies, if, if you were to believe the rating agencies, then uh, the claim is that by pooling together a large number of these mortgages, uh, we can reduce the uh, amount of risk. And so uh, you, you take a bunch of subprime mortgages and put them together, and now suddenly you have a AAA rated security or something like that. Uh, th- this is what their models and calculations showed. And uh, unfortunately, it turned out that that was not the case. So in general, when you combine a large number of securities, uh, diversification can help you uh, bring down your overall risk, but not if all those securities are correlated. 
So if there is one thing that can happen and then all the securities get affected by that, if there is a single event that can make them all go down at the same time, then you don't have adequate diversification. So this this math of diversification is not exactly valid when uh, when, when there are uh, single sources of risk, uh, correlated risk that affect all the securities in a portfolio at the same time. And the ratings agencies, uh, I think it is clear now that they did not take into account uh, the effect of this, these kinds of correlations in uh, fully in their uh, calculations. Thank you. My last question. This is the last. Sure. Um, having had this financial that financial crisis in two thousand eight, are there safeguards now, twenty twenty two, to protect? say investors who are not financially literate from a similar scenario of companies being too over leveraged especially the financial um, companies thank you uh, that that is a great question and honestly i don't know the answer to that i think the safeguards today are better than what they were in 2008, uh, 2009, uh, simply because in the aftermath of 2008 and 2009, uh, a lot of banks were strengthened and and things like that. Uh, But if you're an investor who's financially illiterate, um, you don't really have much of a business dealing in derivatives or (laughs) any of these complicated instruments. And it's always a good idea to invest in what you understand as opposed to uh, (laughs) uh, putting your money into something that you don't understand. So I I would say that uh, the best defense is always to cultivate a certain amount of financial literacy. And with the resources that are available today, uh, the great books and YouTube and uh, Warren Buffett's letters and uh, there's, there's just podcasts and so many great resources available today. It's not that hard to cultivate a basic level of financial literacy and um, that, that will protect you uh, uh, so much. So so there are some very smart people who say that uh, we are bre- better protected today uh, than what we were in 2008 and 2009. But there are equally smart others who say uh, that today the system is uh, a lot worse. The the big banks of 2008 and 2009, they are much bigger now. Uh, the, the system is uh, so much more exposed to uh, single sources of uh, uh, single point failures and things like that and so on. I am not sure which camp to believe, but I, I generally think that it's it's a good idea to cultivate financial literacy and Whenever you're making an investment, whenever you're putting your money somewhere, uh, it's a good idea to dig a little deeper and generally make sure that you understand at least uh, what you're putting your money into to some reasonable extent. Thank you very much, Tenki. Sure. So I'll I'll take the next caller who just goes by K. Hi, Uh, Tenki. Good afternoon and thanks for for doing this. my my question is more regarding um, when you're comparing two investment, one which has a le- leverage and one which does not have a leverage. And uh, let's say they both kind of earning 
uh, at the same amount, like their their gross margin and then their like net margin are are comparable. How how would you how would you value both of those companies? The one which is doing it with leverage and one without the leverage. So let's say one company is valued at five billion and has a one billion of EBITDA. I'm just giving up, making up the numbers. Right. And other company has five billion of enterprise value, so which is let's say three billion of debt and just two billion of equity and earning one billion of EBITDA. Do you think like those two metrics are the same? Like how how would you how would you basically value both companies, one with leverage and one without leverage? That that's a great question. So we have two companies here. So company A and company B. Company A has no leverage. Company B has leverage. But because company B has leverage, um, it, it has to pay, uh, pay out some interest. And right. so ordinarily, if they both make the same amount of uh, same revenues, uh, we would expect company B's margins uh, to be lower, right? Because, uh, because of the interest right. payments. But but if the margins are not lower, if company B um, has the same margins, even though it is making interest payments, then uh, it, it, then it it it's an indication that company B has has a more efficient business or a better run business or or something like that. Uh, but at the same time, um, company A, which has no leverage, uh, that may be an optionality built in there. So for example, for, for many years, uh, Apple did not have any leverage, uh, but they were able to, uh, so when, when Tim Cook took over, uh, what they did is they were able to borrow enormous amounts of money uh, against uh, the cash balances that they held overseas. And then they were able to use some of that money to uh, retire shares and to issue a dividend and things like that. They were able to do all these things. So a company that has no leverage, it's like a clean slate. They can take on leverage, uh, um, possibly on favorable terms, and then uh, improve returns to shareholders. Whereas if a company is already using a lot of leverage, uh, that option may be uh, tapped out. So you'll have to look at that as well. And uh, finally, when, whenever there's a financial crisis or uh, wh- whenever there is an industry uh, level, uh, uh, sector level downturn or some something like that, usually it's companies that have a lot of leverage that are hit first uh, because of the reduction in the margin of safety. So I would first look at both these companies, what industry they are in, if they are in some uh, very capital intensive industry, like if they're both airlines or some, something like that, one airline has no debt, the other airline has a lot of debt, uh, then uh, just because of the cyclicality of the industry and uh, how uh, leverage generally tends to blow up airline companies a lot, uh, I would prefer the company that doesn't have leverage in this case. But if they're both in relatively stable industries, if they're both utility operations or something like that, then uh, a company that does uh, does employ leverage to boost returns for owners uh, that might be more preferable so so it really depends on a lot of factors uh, so you you sort of have to have some understanding of the economics of these businesses how reliable the cash flows are uh, what is the benefit of leverage uh, to, how, how does it uh, 
how does it affect returns on capital? How does it affect margins? Things like that. Uh, versus what what are the risks? Uh, so can, does the company rely on being able to assume more and more leverage to um, uh, to, uh, uh, does it does it rely on rolling over its debt and things like that? Uh, so it, it, it's not very easy to um, tell a priori which company uh, is better than the other because there's not enough information. But generally, these are the things that I would look at when I'm making a comparison like this. Okay, okay. Th- probably I shouldn't have uh, mentioned that like they both have an same net margin because of, of course uh, the company with the leverage would be, would be doing uh worse than the the company without the leverage but like uh if i if i if i take into account like ebitda which doesn't take into account the interest payment that making and the both values are comparable there's possibility that both those both values will be comparable then you you would still think that like the multiple that you pay for both companies should be equal or should be less for the debt that uh, the companies with the debt to to give into account for their debt amount well the thing is uh, i am not a fan of using ebitda and i'll tell you why so uh, people usually take out depreciation and amortization the uh, the da part of ebitda uh, from uh, from they, they they don't consider that uh, in the calculation of earnings because the the wisdom is that all of EBITDA is available to make interest payments. So uh, if, if, because depreciation and amortization is a non-cash cost, mm-hmm. uh, you, when, when you're looking at how much money a company has to pay, uh, to make its interest and principal payments, uh, you, you have to add back uh, depreciation and amortization to earnings, or you have to look at uh, uh, earnings before depreciation and amortization, which is the same thing. Um, now, a lot of businesses, they have something called a maintenance capex. So essentially, um, if, if they employ a large amount of fixed assets and things like that, if you, if you take a utility operation or you take a railroad like BNSF or uh, Union Pacific or one of, one of these companies, uh, they have a certain amount of depreciation and amortization, but they usually have to spend more than the depreciation each year just to keep their assets uh, in the same condition that they were in before. So if uh, c- certain assets have useful lives of 10 years, they have to re- be replaced every once in 10 years. And typically the replacement cost is higher than uh, what is claimed as depreciation and amortization. So if you want the business to remain healthy in the future, uh, you have to spend this maintenance capex. Uh, and that maintenance capex uh, frequently exceeds depreciation and amortization. So what I like to look at is, of course, you, you can add back depreciation and amortization uh, to, to the earnings, but then you have to subtract maintenance capex. And that really, after subtracting out maintenance capex, that is what is left uh, for the company to make its interest and principal payments, uh, not EBITDA. So I, I don't like to go by EBITDA. I like to look at something called owner earnings, uh, which is a term popularized by Warren Buffett, which is essentially EBITDA minus uh, maintenance capex. Uh, and that is what is available to make interest and principal payments. Um, and the other thing is you also have to look at working capital. 
So if a company needs more and more working capital just to keep its unit volume the same, uh, just to maintain uh, its revenues and things like that, then uh, that additional working capital that needs to be put into the business each year, that is also not available to make interest and principal repayments. So if you want to figure out whether a company generates enough cash to be able to make these payments, uh, then you have to look at how much investment needs uh, to be made back into the business, either in the form of maintenance capex or in the form of additional working capital. Only after taking this into account, you can tell whether uh, the company has enough uh, to meet its obligations or not. Thank you. Yes, yes. Thank you very much. Uh, very helpful. Thank you. Sure. So let's take the the next caller, uh, SOS again. Let's hope her mic works this time. Okay, let's try. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you now. Oh, fantastic. Great. Oh, terrific um, explanation and um, an answer to all of these questions. Um, just really impressed with your your articulation. I uh, appreciate your time here. So my financial literacy is um, uh, not near what I'd like it to be, um, but uh, enjoy the markets and enjoy business and all of that um, a lot. And I've learned so much from you. <clears throat> but one thing I really don't understand um, is um, trading on margin and purchasing shares on margin. Um, and the, you know, I, I mean, I understand the, 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 the dangers of leverage, um, but could you just talk more on kind of how that works and how you could use that to your advantage? Uh, right. So I, I'm generally not a fan of uh, trading on margin uh, simply because I think margin uh, does one particular, it, it breaks one particular cardinal rule of investing. And, uh, this cardinal rule is very simple. You should never allow short-term volatility to turn into long-term risk. Uh, so let, let's say you have a stock that is, uh, that's at $100 and uh, you take out a margin loan. Let, let, let's say you put $20 of your own money and uh, $80 comes from margin or something like that. And you use uh, this, to, uh, this $100 to go and buy this uh, stock, which is trading at $100. Now, um, anything could happen. This company could uh, release a poor earnings report or uh, there could be a broader downturn in the economy. The Fed could do something. And uh, as a result, if the stock falls 20%, so it goes from $100 to, uh, let's, let's say, uh, $80. Uh, now, your equity is just wiped out. So a 20% drop in the stock has resulted in a 100% wipeout of your equity. And that is because you took this margin loan. If you had not taken this margin loan, if you had just uh, put $100 of your own money to buy this stock, then a 20% drop in the stock is equal to a 20% drop in your finances as well. But because you took this margin loan, a 20% drop in the stock is equal to a 100% drop in your uh, net, net worth or whatever. So uh, what, what has happened is uh, you cannot predict what happens in the markets in uh, the short term. And so 
when when something like this happens uh, when there is a lot of short term volatility you have to stay in the game and uh, if if you trade on margin the short term volatility can turn into long term risk because uh, through no fault of your own you may have chosen a very good company and uh, the the stock may do very well in the next 5 years but in the next 3 months uh, you may get margin called uh, so you may have made a great long term call but the problem is because of the short term volatility uh, because of the path dependence introduced by the short term volatility you still end up getting wiped out so i'm i'm generally not a fan of trading on margin for this very reason well great great answer i get it um yeah thank you for that thank I, you i know i know what to do now and and i thank you terrific sure sure okay do do we have uh, any more callers okay i i, I see vivek Hey, thank you. Are you able to hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Hey, thank you for all the work that you are doing. This is great. Uh, I'm uh, I'm an ardent follower follower of you on Twitter. Thank you for all those great threads. Uh, thank Thank you very much. Very kind of you to say. Uh, I have a question similar to SOS in the same lines. Uh, instead of um, Uh, margin loan. What are your thoughts on line of credit using securities? Getting those line of credit, maybe to buy a better, safer investment, maybe like you know, real estate, for an example. Uh, well, so the, the, there are mul- multiple kinds of real estate investing. So, so the first uh, thing is just. Uh, to buy your own primary residence and there uh, g- going through a mortgage or something like that uh, can can definitely help you especially if we are uh, getting into an inflationary environment and things like that uh, so there a certain amount of leverage but i suspect what you're asking about is uh, to take out a loan to buy something like a commercial property or or something like that right that's right right uh so with with commercial properties uh, you uh, have a large number of different concerns so the primary concern is what are the cash flows uh, from the property going to look like so uh, first uh, how how much capital do you need to put into the property so how much of the capital is going to come from you how much is going to come from other investors and how much is going to come from debt um and then what are the cash flows that are going to be produced by this property and what is the timing of those cash flows so frequently what a lot of people do is they they borrow money and then they uh, they need to take this borrowed money to buy a property but then they have to refurbish this property before they can uh, rent it out or something like that and get cash flows from it uh, but Uh, they they may need to get permissions from various uh, local governments and things like that in order to refurbish this property so the whole project the refurbishment itself 
can take a year. And during that year, what's going to happen is this property is not going to be throwing off any cash flows, uh, but interest payments may still be due during that year. So you, you have to be very sure that you'll be able to meet all your obligations, uh, even if the property does not start throwing off cash right away. Um, if you're reasonably sure of that, and if you're uh, sure about the long-term economics of the property, uh, you have to then figure out, okay, how much cash flows uh, is this property going to be uh, throwing off for you? And how much of those cash flows need to be uh, used just to service the debt? So uh, if, if the property throws off, say, 100K per year or something like that uh, after expenses, uh, then uh, if, if you're going to be spending, say, 20K per uh, of that 100K in um, uh, servicing the loan that is paying off the interest and any periodic principal repayments and things like that, uh, then you're, you're okay uh, because, uh, well, you, you're likely to be okay uh, because you're getting 100K from the property and you need only 20K to service the, uh, the loan. Whereas uh, if you're getting uh, 100K from this property, but you need 90K of it to service the loan, then you may be in more trouble uh, simply because your margin of safety is lower. So for example, what if uh, there is some unforeseen maintenance expense or uh, what, what if there is a slowdown in the economy and uh, you're, you're, you're not able to get any rent on this property for uh, three months or something like that? Will you still be able to make those principal and interest payments, even if your uh, property uh, for a short period of time, like three months or four months or something like that, does not throw off cash. So essentially, uh, the analysis is very similar for uh, properties as for other investments. You have to look at the cash flows, uh, not just uh, how much you the property will throw, uh, but also when uh, this cash will come to you. Uh, and what is the probability that uh, th this cash will be more than enough to meet your obligations? And uh, if, if the calculus works right, then uh, leverage can be uh, a very powerful magnifying effect uh, on your returns as a property owner. But if the calculus is wrong, then uh, the consequences are very dire because you can end up losing the entire property. So whoever loaned you the money, the bank that loaned you the money uh, can uh, actually take the property away from you and, and so on. And you, you never want to get into that kind of situation. That, does that make sense? Oh, yes, that totally makes sense. Thank you, 10K. Sure. Uh, so the next caller is uh, Rehards, who's a regular caller on the show. Hi, 10K. Hello. Uh, thank you for this topic. Very, very uh, nicely uh, told. I have like two questions. First is, uh, first will be, uh, tell me if my reasoning is correct. Um, so, um, um, this is a question about two companies. Uh, when one, one of companies uses leverage and, and, and a second company doesn't use leverage and which, which one is more appealing for an investor uh somebody asked this question right, a couple right. of minutes ago right uh so tell me if my reason is correct one thing we should uh 
look at is uh, probably a direction of uh, interest rates. Like, uh, let's say right now we we, we, we believe that interest rates will go up. It means that for company with leverage, probably it it in a, in the near future it will become much harder to operate in the same mode as before just because of rising interest rates it will be much harder to to, to pay down this interest payments uh well so that depends on whether uh, the loans that have already been taken out by the company so we have this company that's got leverage but um, you have to look at what the interest payments are so if uh-huh. it's a fixed interest loan yeah. that they've taken out then the interest rates can rise in the future and that's not going to affect the loans that have already been taken out uh-huh. but on the other hand if it's something like a variable interest loan so there is some uh, risk free rate plus a certain uh, uh, margin on top of that if that is the interest rate then yes uh, if interest rates rise in the future then these existing loans will be affected as well so uh, generally speaking i like to look at uh, companies that take out fixed interest debt and a lot of high quality companies they are able to take out when when the rates are low they are able to take out uh, loans at fixed interest and mm-hmm. and then even if the ri- uh, rates rise later uh, it doesn't affect these loans but you're right if if this company relies so much on leverage that every year they have to go back to the market and borrow more and more money uh, just to keep their business going then uh, if the interest rates rise in the future then uh, the future borrowing uh, will become less and less attractive so i generally like to look at companies that are very opportunistic about when they choose to issue equity so when the environment is favorable and when the interest rates are low and when the companies are able to uh, when they're able to borrow a huge amount of money at very favorable terms they go out and issue bonds and uh, borrow this money but then when uh, the market turns unfavorable uh, and uh, interest rates rise and so on uh, they don't have to go and issue any debt their existing cash flows and the cash that they generate from their regular operations are more than enough to uh, pay off all their obligations and there's absolutely no need for them to go and uh, look at debt as a source of financing when that financing is available only on unattractive terms yes. so it it really depends on uh, the the kind of debt that has been already issued and also the future capital needs of the company whether they are going to be uh, needing cash in the future or whether they can uh, generate cash uh, generate sufficient amounts of cash from their own uh, regular business operations right um yeah just uh, right now listening to you i remembered idea i i i heard uh, this week or 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 previous week is that uh, actually uh, capitalism is doesn't work uh best when when interest rates are close to zero uh interest rates needs needs to rise a little bit and then uh, then as i understand what happens is it's like natural selection of 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 businesses there will be businesses which will naturally die off 
because they could only exist with close to zero interest rates in this quote unquote unnatural environment. And when 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 interest rates rises, then only fit companies will will stay and stay in the game. Well, it it is true that when <laughs> interest rates are low. Uh, a lot of companies borrow uh, to finance all all kinds of uh, questionable projects and and things like that and uh, yeah i mean ultimately companies that uh, do, do those kinds of things uh, are are generally not the best of breed companies and when when capital is available at a very cheap price companies that uh, that that tend to simply blow up a lot of capital <laughs> Yeah. My, my second question is also what somebody already asked about uh, trading or buying stocks on margin. And can you compare uh, buying stocks on margin with uh, buying, buying options and derivatives? So as I understand, both these are ways to make a levered play. Can you compare them? How how do they, these two ways compare between uh, both? Thank you. Uh, that that is a great question. So they are both uh, ways to use leverage, and uh, with, with with one of them, you you only put up a part. Uh, so so with, when you take out margin, uh, what what you do is you go and buy stocks. You don't buy derivatives. Uh, but you put up only part of the money and uh, the rest of it you borrow. Uh, when you buy options, uh, what, what you do is you bet on the underlying stock. Uh, but the thing is, you uh, you, you still, uh, well, you, you bet on the underlying stock, but you put up only a small fraction of the capital. Now, uh, one important difference between margins and uh, options is that when you buy an option, you can choose to hold that option uh, to maturity. Uh, whereas when you uh, when, when you take out a margin loan, you are kind of dependent on whoever you take the margin loan from. So let, let's say uh, you you take out a margin loan and use it to buy a stock. Um, now the let's say the stock is at $100 and you you um, put in $20 of your own money and take $80 from your broker. Now, if the stock goes to uh, $80, if the stock drops 20%, say, then uh, you may get margin called. So if you get margin called, uh, then you may have to give up the entire position. Uh, whereas if, if the stock goes down to, so, so when the stock goes down to $80, uh, you, you essentially have to liquidate. Uh, so, so the broker will automatically sell your shares and the broker will take their money and you have basically lost all your money. But mm-hmm. when you put it, when you put money into uh, buying a call option or something like that, the stock may go to $80 but you may still keep the call option. And then if the stock recovers after that, if the stock goes from, say, say it went from 100 to 80, but then uh, after that it went from 80 to 120, then mm-hmm. you your option may still 2x in value or something like that. And you may still end up making a profit from that transaction simply because 
you decided when to hold through the option whereas with the with the margin uh, loan uh, you could be margin called and so when you have a path dependent effect so a stock going from 100 to 80 and then from 80 to 120 when you take out a margin loan you could be completely wiped out but when you do the trade through options you may in fact end up making a huge amount of money so there are these path dependent effects uh, that that come about as mm-hmm. a result of uh, these two different ways of betting on the same stock okay thank you thank you sure uh, so the the next caller is raj yeah uh, thanks thank you for this uh, wonderful session um uh, so my question is um, you know when you look at companies for investment right uh, i'm talking about public um, public companies now as an investor what part of the financial statements i should be looking for to ensure that i as an investor have a full understanding of the leverage that a company is uh, taking upon uh, is it just the debt or are there any other um areas we should be looking for to 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 get an hang of um, the overall leverage uh well i would say that all the financial statements come into play here so for example uh if you look at the, the most obvious thing is to look at the debt uh, on the balance sheet so there uh, on on the balance sheet you have uh, the current portion of long term debt and the long term debt as well so one will come under current assets and the other will come under long uh, long long term sorry one will come under current liabilities and the other one will come under uh, non current liabilities so so you have to look at the balance sheet to get an idea of what uh, the short term and long term debt is uh, then you you do have to look at the income statement because the income statement is what is going to tell you how much the the company is paying in interest right so uh, are they making enough money before interest um, and how much of the money that they make before interest are they spending on interest uh, so you need to look at that if you want to uh, uh, figure out whether the interest uh, payments are reasonable given the cash flow g- uh, generating power of the company uh, so you have to look at the income statement Uh, you also have to look at the cash flow statement because you need to know how much investment the company has to make back into its own operations each year so i spoke about maintenance capex and working capital needs of the business and things like that and so the cash flow statement looking at that will tell you okay how much does the company claim in depreciation and amortization and how much do they have to spend in excess of depreciation and amortization uh just to keep their current business going now um the cash flow statement will tell you how much they spend on capex uh but it may not break down the capex into maintenance capex and growth capex so maintenance capex is what the business needs to spend just to keep its competitive position and unit volume and things like that just to keep the business from going downhill whereas growth capex is what the business has to spend to actually go uphill and a lot of cash flow statements uh 
in fact all cash flow statements they uh, they they don't really make a distinction between these two so you have to sort of understand the business a little bit to try and figure out uh, what the maintenance capex is but the cash flow statement will also tell you uh, the changes to the working capital so how much uh, does the business need extra uh, in inventory how much does it need in receivables how much of that comes from an increase in payables things like that so uh, if you know how much extra working capital a business needs each year and also how much if how much it needs to reinvest back into its own operations through maintenance capex that will give you a better picture of how much cash is actually available to make these interest and principal payments so you'll have to look at the cash flow statement as well <laughs> so you, in order to understand a company's true exposure to leverage you uh, you have to look at all three financial statements but it doesn't even stop there you actually have to look at the notes to the financial statements <laughs> because the balance sheet will list what the total debt of the company is it won't tell you whether the debt is due uh, two years from now or five years from now or 10 years from now <laughs> uh, what are the terms under which the money has been borrowed what are the covenants uh, if any um and um, are, are there any equity kickers or things like that is the debt convertible or non convertible all these things the balance sheet uh, usually won't tell you so you you have to look at the notes to the balance sheet the notes to the consolidated financial statements uh, which will uh, break down these details for you um and so uh, if if a company uses a lot of leverage you you typically have to uh, re- read a lot of <laughs> uh the, the not not just the financial statements but also the notes to the financial statements to figure out whether management is doing a good job employing leverage uh, for the benefit of the owners or not so 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 basically to conclude what you're saying is that if a company let's say is paying down its debt by raising more debt right so right. that is is actually uh, i mean rather than paying the the, the existing debt or or you know uh, through earnings um so so the, the the first case where it's paying uh, through raising more debt is actually the case of over leveraging right so that those kind of companies we should avoid because um, because they are they, it's like a ponzi scheme right is that is, is, did i understand it right well so uh, there is a distinction between a company that is choosing to issue more debt to pay down its current debt versus a company that has to issue more debt so a company may make enough cash uh, but they may decide to use the cash for dividends and buybacks and things like that or to go uh, make acquisitions or uh, to go buy out competitors or something like that they they can use the cash for other things um if the environment is favorable they may decide that they are going to use the cash for these other things and then they are just going to borrow uh, money to pay down existing debt and to some extent that may be okay that may be justified because the environment may be favorable they may be able to get a, a very low interest rate and things like that but there is the second class of company that doesn't even have the option so the only way they can pay off current debt is to uh, go and issue new debt or failing that they have to issue equity uh, which is going to dilute existing shareholders so there are broadly two classes of companies companies that make enough cash but then still decide to issue debt simply because it's available on attractive terms 
versus the second kind of company, which is they have no choice. They have to keep issuing debt uh, simply to uh, make uh, required investments into their business, like working capital or CapEx or things like that. Uh, so uh, the the two businesses are very different. So uh, you, you should generally prefer to invest in the first kind of business as opposed to the second kind of business because this uh, it, it's uh, something like a Ponzi scheme, as, as, as you said. They, if, if you have to keep borrowing from Peter to pay Paul or something like that, then sooner or later you may run out of Peters to, to lend you money. So, so Tenke, I think you alluded to one more a point which 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 was my question i mean my my next question was where is the equity part of uh, i mean plays into the leverage equation but you did mention that there is a possibility the company might issue more shares dilute the current shareholders uh, but then that also will add up now do do we call that that aspect where they are issuing more shares as leverage is is that Considered to be leverage? Uh, no, issuing equity is generally not considered to be leverage uh, simply because uh, equity is capital that is put up by the owners of a business. So financial leverage comes from using other people's money to improve returns for the owners of the company. So if the owners are putting up the money themselves uh, through equity capital, then that's not really leverage. The, it's just the owner's money. Uh, so so uh, that, that, that's not a use of leverage. Thanks a lot. Thank, thanks for the clarification. Sure. Uh, so, so the next uh, caller is uh, Ratin Vora. Hi, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Thanks, 10K. Uh, excellent uh, discussion. Uh, I, I just, uh, I think a uh, uh, caller before the last caller talked about options and uh, I was just thinking maybe, maybe this is a topic for a different day just on options, but uh, options uh, as uh, meaning is as a form or as a type of leverage versus options as in you know, used for other things like in hedging and those kinds of uh uh things so right. so yeah so i i just uh, wanted your thoughts on uh what you consider a, a majority of the use for options though i know most people use it for a form of hedging as i would say not for an for my hedging but but as a form of leverage to buy stuff so that they get uh, higher returns. Thanks. Uh, right, right, absolutely. So options are a very, very versatile tool. So uh, a lot of people use options in, in different ways. So as, as you pointed out, some people use options uh, purely uh, to hedge their positions. So if, if I own um, stock in, say, um, say, say, Facebook or something like that, uh, I, I may decide to sell uh, call options against uh, this this Facebook uh, stock. Then what happens is if if the stock goes down, uh, then uh, at least the the uh, I make some money on the on the options I sold. Um, so so the, the the call options will also go down if the stock goes down, 
and and so since i've already sold the call options uh, I've, I've made a little bit of money on on that so uh, that that is a kind of hedging and there are all kinds of uh, hedging strategies there are stra- uh, straddles and spreads and uh, the, you 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 can um, you can get into uh, as complicated strategies as you like with with options and a lot of people do things like that so that that is not really a form of leverage in action uh, although you can argue that a certain amount of convexity in the option provides you with a, with an amount of uh, leverage uh, so a lot of people also use options uh, to to do leverage uh, simply because uh, you you only require a small amount of capital so if if you want to buy uh, say 100 shares of uh, apple uh, t- today uh, e- each share may cost $150 so you need $15000 of capital uh, but you can get exposure to the upside of 100 shares of apple uh, simply by buying one apple call option and uh, depending on the strike price and the expiry date and all that you may be able to buy uh that that call option for something like 10 dollars a share so uh if you want to buy the stock you have to pay 150 dollars a share but if you want to buy the option um which will experience roughly a similar kind of upside uh to to the share uh, then in 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 dollar terms uh then you, you just have to pay 10 dollars uh, uh, per share if you're uh, taking a position in the option and so that uh, in percentage terms your returns can be much higher but then of course there's also the risk that uh, you, your entire capital that you sink into this option can be wiped out so that that is leverage in action so usually when people use options um, to gain leverage they they do it with naked option strategies like uh, just just buying a call option not offsetting it with a put or anything like that just just buying a naked uh, just buying a call option uh, so so you, you can use options to for income you can use options for hedging you can use options uh, uh, so Ma- mark spitznagel uh, if you read his book called uh, safe haven uh, he he outlines a way to use options to uh, as a as a form of portfolio uh, insurance to protect your portfolio to hedge against events like uh, covid or something like that sudden market crashes then 1987 crash and things like that uh, so yes op- options are a very very versatile tool you can use them in a lot of different ways and y- you're absolutely right that uh, he- hedging uh, is is one way to do it uh, but a lot of people just use it to get leverage thank you and uh, yeah and just one other point meaning with the with using it as naked options or just for financing things uh the margin of safety of course is shorter because the options are uh dated right so the margin of safety uh you lose a lot on that yes you you have to be right not not just about the when you're doing a a, a naked options strategy when you're just buying a call or buying a put or something like that you you have to be right not not only about the direction of the underlying security you also have to be right about the time yes thank you absolutely absolutely
so I don't see any other callers in the queue. So uh, thank you all very much for showing up and listening to me so patiently. Uh, it was great. I really enjoyed uh, answering uh, all, all the questions. They were all such lovely questions today. And uh, so th thank you all very much for uh, showing up and see you next Sunday. Bye-bye.